Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Finance Show with Simon and Alex. Today we're walking in New York, we just passed Soho, going into No Home, all the Houston coordinates. And we actually just got off of a very interesting phone call with our producers at Defiance Media, which uh, helped syndicate our show. And they gave us some feedback, said walking episodes, definitely good. Uh, then they also said, hey, you know, we should, we should be a little bit more, you know, thoughtful about the topics we talk about because sometimes we meander. Do we meander? Hey, look at this umbrella. Ooh, there. nice umbrella. And never mind. <laughs> so Mark, uh, who's, who runs the finds, CEO, and Cookie, who's this excellent producer, said, you know, just put some thoughts on paper before you talk about it. And she and I started walking and thinking, you know, what's the, what's the identity of the show? What's, what should we be? And so she had an interesting perspective where we both share this perspective about why we actually, you know, consider and talk about money and investments and value in this way. So I'll let you, what's our identity, Shimon? So basically when we think about it, what's fun is we like to be contrarian. We don't like to just parrot, uh, you know, what Wall Street, you know, the, the analyst consensus and stuff. But we also are optimistic. Uh, so contrarian and optimistic, which is interesting for me, the way this manifests is in two, two main things. One, the optimism lets me drown out the noise. So whenever people are like, oh, interest rates just went up by 75 basis points. Uh, the economy is crashing. Last time it took 20 years for it to recover. Now it's going to take maybe less because like there's more debt, whatever. That's like the micro, but the macro is that I'm optimistic. I think that humanity will find a way to grow. And, uh, and then that means that investments should also grow. So that's like one. And then the other thing is the techno part, the technology part. So if you think about why technology is so powerful, it basically allows you to um, be more efficient at how you use energy. So you have calories or, or jowls going in, and then you have output. And so we've become better and better. Like for example, in the beginning, we had, uh, uh, we had, um, you know, those energy units shoved into a mouth of a water buffalo, and then the water buffalo helps you till the field. And so those energy rice. units are called grass. <laughs> so yeah, grass is made out of jowls, jewels. Jewels. A calorie is four jewels, if I remember correctly from my biochemistry class. But anyway, my point is. So humanity has been very good at uh, using energy better. So instead of like feeding a cow and then tilling the thing, now you have a GPS powered like harvester that knows exactly, you know, how much um, fertilizer to put in every unit of ground. And then the, you know, the output is much, much more per energy unit. But there's one thing that humanity hasn't invested a lot in, in the last like 70 years. It is the energy itself. We've only thought of like, oh, there's cheaper energy over there. Let's import it like Russia, like Saudi Arabia. But just think of how many wars have been fought over energy. Uh, all of the Middle Eastern wars, the Russia-Ukraine war, the Syrian civil war. We've spoken about this in the podcast. And so my optimism on this issue comes that because of this unique uh, circumstance of the war, people will actually innovate in how to generate local energy that's cheaper. And it's pretty much the first time in the last 70 years that people had an incentive to. 
What do you think, Alex? Yeah, and look, and we both have this interesting perspective, by the way, because we're both immigrants. We both came to this country and actually seen how technology has dramatically improved the lives in America versus, you know, Ukraine for me and Bulgaria, Shimon, and then in Israel. Yeah, in Israel, you saw it actually changing life. life. You know, I saw before and after Ukraine to um, uh, to the U.S. You saw it changing in Israel. Mm-hmm. We should we should let's touch upon that, but. Um, so, so we've experienced it. You know, it's one thing about talking about it theoretically and the other thing of actually experiencing it. And I think this is why we both went into tech. So Shimon was in many startups uh, doing essentially CMO positions and uh, in, in many tech industries. I was advising tech companies at the Boston Consulting Group and at Microsoft. And so we've seen these things play out as a consumer, just experiencing it and advising companies at the highest levels of you know microsoft and uh in the bcg and bcg we would advise all of the top companies microsoft being one of the top two companies in the world um so we we, we've actually seen it by the way this is beautiful new york washington square park oh i love new york in the in the fall people doing whatever it is that they're doing people do these things all seasons yeah Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy their life. How, how was it for you? So be, sorry, before we go, before we go there, I think we're going to orient this podcast from now on, not just on finance, although finance is at the core of everything we talk about from a value perspective, right? Um, we ultimately, just like you can measure energy and calories and joules, we can measure uh, utility in, well, we can measure benefits and utility and in some sort of monetary gain not money for money's purpose uh, purpose just by itself but money is a means to an end and so we'll do this podcast tech out you know hardcore finance but very much a techno technology optimistic based perspective on the future and we'll try to take all of the you know when things are bad we'll say things are bad but we'll try to give a positive spin so if you want some sort of hopium um and to feel good a little bit about how to get out of very certain situations, maybe tune into us. So on that note, you know, can we talk a little bit about Israel? How did you, how did you, did you see it actually changing, technology actually changing for you when you were there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the main thing about Israel was fascinating because in the 80s, they, they kind of almost went bankrupt. And then they went to the Americans and were like, look, we can default on our debt, but please save us because, you know, we are your important ally. Uh, in the Middle East, so you know you have an interest of us having a stable economy. And we have stable ambulances in New York. Yeah, that's uh, that's the status quo in New York. So anyway, now you know this is real audience. You know this is real. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so then the Americans, uh, thank God, uh, they were very smart. They said, "Sure, we'll bail you out, but the condition is you guys have to open your markets completely." Now the thing is, the Jewish engineering mind has always been good. Uh, in, in, you know, Nobel Prizes uh, won by Jews are way, way over-indexed. But in Israel, it was a very socialist country. It was founded by Russians uh, who were socialists. And so in the beginning, everything was a monopoly, a state monopoly. So even though the engineering power was there, the, the mind was there, uh, they didn't have to compete and so because they didn't have to compete on a global scale the politics and you know other suboptimal ways of you know designing stuff um was was uh, rampant so nobody bought israeli stuff except for military uh just because in the military kind of are competing on a global scale because uh, all the arabs were getting 
the Russian arsenal and the Russians are pretty good actually at making weapons so if, if we wanted to compete literally on the battlefield we had to design things that are better than the Russians which were best in class or together with the Americans so that's why up until the late 80s Israel was pretty much only exporting either agriculture or weapons but then in the 80s after the US made Israel open up in all industries suddenly now we have two industries that are literally world-class. There's the tech industry, where you can see startups per capita and uh, success of those startups and so forth. We're number two after the, I don't know, maybe we're even number one. But anyway, very, very successful. And then now oil and gas, they discovered a bunch of, of gas. And from what I'm understanding, I'm not like an expert, but they're very, very good at extracting. It's, it's all American companies like Chevron and stuff, but still uh, there's lots of, uh, you know, Jewish engineering there. And so for me, those two things just say you need good regulation that doesn't get in your way or maybe even promotes like the Americans forced Israel to open up and good like, you know, hardworking people. And then you can create growth. And the nice thing is that can be replicated everywhere. I don't think there's anything special about Israel. Look at Singapore, look at Hong Kong, look at Dubai. There's many, many places that have been able to replicate it because guess what? Even if you don't have the engineering power in-house, if you just have a good regulatory environment, you can import uh, engineering know-how. Uh, Alex, how has it been for you coming to this country or experience? Well, similar, I do want to touch upon the regulatory environment. It's very key to a lot of things that we talk about. And sometimes we come off as anti-regulation. I don't think, I'm not anti-regulation. You know, I was talking today to uh, someone that were here in New York at the crypto conference in Mainland. And somebody asked me today, he's like, what are you most excited about? My answer is regulation. Just get over, you know, just let's go. Get, bring it. I, I'm confident that the U.S. won't kill crypto. In fact, I know that they don't want to. But give us regulation. Give us rules of the road so people can innovate. And this is the same thing coming from the former Soviet Union. I was a child. But you can see this very directly in uh, the Russian-Ukrainian war about when you have a corrupt system. When people are just incentivized to take uh, and take for themselves um, and, you know, do only what's, you know, in their SOP, if you will, or what's in their line of, of, of uh, uh, like, of work. You know, I'm a widget maker and that's all I do. And not innovate and not go outside the lines because the government and other regulation are going are gonna, to uh, screw you if you do. The whole thing falters. Here, here's a great example. You know, one of our earliest episodes... I forgot when this was. This was before the Biden election. We should link to this. So we will. When we talked about what does it mean to have the U.S. dollar be the reserve currency and can they, anything else be the reserve currency? And one of the major theses that we talked about was this, um, I know, maybe it's a little cheesy, but thesis of kind of love, you know, love conquers all. And in this case, in economics, love is kind of openness. When you have, when you allow people to choose, and they choose to be in your economy, in your country, it's much stronger than when you force them. Like prime example right now is Russia. They just yesterday on the twenty second, twenty first September, they announced that they're going to conscript people into the army, and people who are looking to leave, let's say leave Russia altogether, young men, they're closing the border, not allowing people to leave. So. Regardless of what we think about the Russian-Ukrainian war, and clearly I'm, you know, I wanted to stop. I think Putin is a madman and I'm uh, very much against the war. But if you're Russia and you want to actually accomplish something 
why would you put people in your ranks that you're forcing to put in who are not motivated and will likely sabotage the fight? It never works. It literally, same thing in markets. When you force, when the government comes in and forces the closure of something instead of giving people the choice and educating them about the choice, it doesn't ultimately work in the long run. You know? Um, have you experienced this? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, definitely I've experienced this. Uh, Israel is actually very good at that. Uh, there's two examples. One is if you, uh, let's say you don't want to go to the army in Israel, they never close the border. Uh, they always let people leave. But then if you defected from the army, they just don't let you come back uh, into the country for like seven years or something. And the idea, it's, it's kind of genius because it's like, yeah, you don't want to lock people inside that oppose you. Just let them leave. And it's the same. We had, I think, a member of parliament that was... Um, doing espionage for uh for Hezbollah and so wow. they were like yeah he was he was telling them they were shooting missiles and he was telling them exactly where they fell or something like that and so what the, what the Israelis did is the security service just called him and is like uh hey uh we're thinking of arresting you for espionage uh, you need to come for an interrogation like three days from now and so he immediately like fled to Dubai and since then he's in Dubai and so we don't have to deal with like someone, you know, getting trials and you have to prove it or whatever. You know Self-selection. What I mean? Yeah. So it's like, I, I didn't understand Russia. I really hope the problem with Russia is that they're so big and they have so many like reserves uh, in terms of resources. I heard a podcast about, yeah, like, you know, they can't import stuff, but they actually can import stuff from China and India and like, let's see how long they can go. Like... I really hope that now that he's conscripting people, I, by the way, in the beginning he said he's only conscripting reservists. Now he's but now, yeah, now on Twitter you see IT people yeah. that have never held a gun and they get like the note that they have. I, to people getting people get into car accidents, and the police is like writing him a ticket. Some random does a video. A random guy comes up, he's like, "You're conscripting." The guy and the driver was like, "What do you? Why? Send it to my address." He's like, "Who are you?" So the guy who's conscripting him. It doesn't matter who I am. Here's a conscription. Oh no, it, yeah, it's, it's so he didn't end up getting it. But just it's just <laughs> it's just lunacy what's happening, right? And you wouldn't think that a major, call it developed or semi-developed country is going to have this, but they do. You know, they do. So the point is, any kind of closed system or system with harsh regulations uh, will ultimately where those regulations, assuming are super harsh, is going to fail. U.S. war on drugs, same thing. When those commercials, this is your brain, this is your brain on weed, and it's just this hard coming after marijuana. We spend how many billions, trillions? I don't know the right statistics, but definitely tens of billions of dollars at the very least on marijuana, like fighting the marijuana war. Why? why? Now it's loudly tax, they're taxing it, uh, and it's recreation illegal pretty much everywhere. <laughs> Like, it didn't stop, but they wasted money. Instead, all these years, they could have been collecting tax revenue. We would have been exactly where we are now. Yeah. You know, maybe even better. You know, another anecdote is all of us... Well, at least here in the U.S., if they catch you smoking weed, they don't conscript you to the army. That's true. And have that to be grateful. In Russia, you're in jail for seven years <laughs> because you had weed residue. Like, um, I, I forgot the WNBA player's name. Poor woman who's in a Russian jail. Yeah. It's just a political stunt, obviously. But, you know, she's on the front end of the... Brittany, um, I forgot her name. Uh, she's a, she's a, one of the WME players. They like players. doing that stuff. There was an Israeli stoner that, like, was from India, was, like, traveling back to Israel, and somehow the plane, like, landed in Russia. 
no. unexpectedly. Oh my god. And then they found some weed, like an insignificant amount of weed in her luggage. And they're like, same thing, 10 years in jail. And then they, they swapped her for this like hardcore Russian hacker that had been hacking into the Pentagon or something and was arrested in Israel. Yeah. And they were like, oh yeah, you want this one? Send us this one. So for her weed. Yeah, it's just like a random person. Yeah. It's so sad. I mean, seeing these regimes just make me, makes me like a little bit lose faith in humanity. For sure. And seeing the fact that people are ultimately okay with it or, you know, it's, it's easy for us to talk about it here. It's like, oh, they should rise up. It's hard. You can literally get shot in Russia right now in the protests. Some people that are protesting the war, they get arrested and the police station get automatically conscripted. It's just like uh, it's just like kicking them when they're down. But then again, you know, everything is a price. You know, you lived in Russia for with 10% tax and 15% tax and lawlessness and anybody could become rich. Everything is a price. You know, overall, in the long run, this is another, I guess, um, theme of ours. Markets are fairly efficient. Nothing is free. When things seem to be too good to be true, they likely are. Except for investing in Bitcoin. Please don't be stupid and buy some Bitcoin. Not financial advice. Not financial advice. If it was up to me, I would. Not financial advice. Do your own research. Um, but, but, you know, it's, if it seems to be too good to be true, it often, it often is. And, and what, what happens is at some point, you know, you pay the piper and regulation comes. Or the government just clamps down. Like in Russia, it's, no, it's not regulation. They just wrote a law overnight. It's like, oh, well, now this is illegal, what you've been doing before because we wrote a law. Or now you, have to, you can go to the army. By the way, they're conscripting not 300,000 people, but people saw the text, 1 million. The plans are for 1 million men to conscript the army. It's crazy to go fight and die. Anyway. Well, it brings us back to what we you know already. So, what makes yeah. you optimistic about this war, Alex? I'm not going to let you off the hook. Yeah. No, don't let me off the hook. Say one good thing. Yeah. The, the one major, major well, there are two good things. One is the, the world is coming off of dollars, which is good and bad. Uh, good is that we've been, you know, the, a lot of countries are rightfully upset with the U.S. because we've been commanding. We've been bullying a lot of small countries around. We really have. And a lot of it's because of the dollar system or the petrodollar system. And for those of you who don't know, the petrodollar basically is the U.S. negotiated trade of oil, petroleum, to be denominated in dollars. So people are forced to buy dollars to settle debts, especially oil trade and then, you know, U.S. and other debts are denominated in dollars. And that's good because I actually am okay with the U.S. losing a little bit of power here. Because it will bring power to stable coins like USDT and USDC and crypto. I think the second good thing is that we talked about a lot is that it forces people off of the Russian gas system. You know, and it forces the Europeans to wake up. They've been sleeping on, on this problem for a while. You know, it's like sleeping in a cage with a tiger. And people are yelling, hey, there's a tiger in the cage. And I'm like, oh, he's sleeping. Well, the tiger woke up and he just mauled you. So the Putin or the bear, I guess, in this case, the Russian bear woke up. And he's mauled Siberian Europe. Siberian tiger. The Siberian tiger. You know, he bit. And the faster we can get off of Russian oil and Russian gas and go nuclear, finally Euro Europeans are waking up to us. And hopefully this whole ESG, nuclear not being part of ESG, bullshit narrative goes away. But the Europeans are waking up to this now. And, and I really hope that the world builds more nuclear stations. And I'll say the last thing, because I want to hear your opinion of why this is the positive of the war.
is that a lot of safety concerns of nuclear that we have now are based on old technology. Remember, nuclear power stations are fairly young. You know, we had the bomb in 1945, 1950s and 60s, and 70s, when a lot of these plants were built. The technology is cut. That's only 20 years after the technology was invented. Since then, you know, since the 70s, we're 50 years ahead. We more than doubled, you know, this is 3x the lifespan between when they created nuclear technology to making power plants. The power plants now are smaller, safer, more efficient, and so on and so forth. And even a lot of times you see on the news, the Russians are shelling these nuclear power plants in Ukraine. Well, the ugly truth is, while it's terrible, and an accident can happen, an accident will be terrible, they are... They are actually made to withstand missiles hitting the nuclear power plants. And this is in the 70s they built. Yeah, I heard a podcast now that they have a uh, method where if things start getting out of control, there is like a way to just poison the whole thing and shut it down immediately. And then it's like a really costly process to, to clean it up. It's almost like it destroys like half of the value of the power plant. But... It's pretty much fail-proof. Like, even if you have a missile that hits you, you have it enough time. It's like an automatic system that just, like, poisons the water. I mean, poison in the sense that it stops the reaction. And so this is, like, a relatively very new technology. My point is, look, we spoke about... Uh, do you have anything else to say about no, that? Yeah, so the, the one thing that you said that actually makes me very bullish, this whole idea of getting off the, the dollar, you know, some people argue, is it good or is it bad? Hard to know uh, because, like, the good aspects of this is that it's like um, it's good for American manufacturing. The the dollar would be less strong, which means we can, you know, manufacture things here and export them elsewhere. It's bad for imports, but forget about that. I'm just thinking, just like Israel, where everything was a monopoly, things weren't run really efficiently. And I think when the U.S. had to compete with the USSR. Uh, they had pressure to just like be good, you know, be efficient. Uh, you listen to some of the things from the politicians today, it, it just sounds like sloppy. I'm not even disagreeing with them, it's just sloppy arguments. So like, sure, you want to be a socialist, give me a good argument on why socialism, but like, don't make a sloppy argument. Like, you look at, uh, uh, even Biden now tweeted, oh, finally, corporations will be taxed. It's like, what are you talking about? Even if you take everybody's wealth, you can't even pay the, the debt. Like, it's not, it's not as simple as raising taxes. Like, if it was simple to raise taxes, they could have done it last year. They could have done it two years ago. They could have done it, like, during Bill Clinton. Like, it's not easy. So just don't do sloppy things. And I think the more now we get into a multipolar world, where the U.S. has actually to, to compete with some... I mean, look, Chinese people are smart. Russian people are smart. If you just look at IQ, they're not like stupid people. So competing is good. So that's one thing that makes me happy that we're going to slowly get off the dollar. Yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I kind of agree with that. Before, I, I was hesitant to agree because I'm a little bit more kind of loyal or partisan. Like, yeah, USA, and I, I do love this country a lot. But there was something to be said about being in a position, in a leadership position for so long, become complacent. We become complacent. And you can see where our policies are, too. We're so polarized. Democrats versus Republicans, abortion or not. Like, what? 
we're talking about abortion in 2020 when there are real problems in the world. We just have, we've been very privileged in the U.S. not to face any kind of hardship that a lot of the other people around the world have faced. We're actual competition, right? And look, I think we'll make this better in the long run. And only because we believe in the same system. American system has been built upon competition. We always talk about, hey, it's bad to have monopolies, good to have companies that compete with each other. Why not countries? Why do we stop? Why don't our, you know, why aren't our politicians a lot more uh, responsible or accountable for the policies they put in? This reminds me of a meme that we have in the Lazarov household. Uh, I don't know how many of you are uh, Sound of Music fans, the, the classic the musical, and then Family Guy fans. The overlap of these two, the Venn diagram, if you will, uh, is the Lazarov family. There's a really amazing uh, episode in Family Guy where they make they spoof the sound of music. And like, Stewie comes, like, says, I have a sore finger, you know, like Liesel in the sound of music. And then Peter is like, the Nazis are trying to take over the country. We have bigger problems right now. <laughs> so, so it's the same. That's what I want to tell the ESG people and all the like. You know, my father again was a nuclear engineer. He told me about all these environmental groups. It's like, okay, we have bigger problems right now. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. On the note, new, new uh, thanks, Mark and Cookie. Uh, thanks, Shimon. Thanks for listening to us while we walk and cruise the streets of New York. A new hardcore finance show, Identity, is coming to you. This is Shimon Alex. Alvida Zay, good night. Until next time. Until next time.